This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. A town meeting in Alice Springs reveals deep divisions over how to tackle growing rates of alcohol-fuelled crime and violence. Thousands of people gathered to consider a potential class action against the Northern Territory government for not doing enough to solve the problems. Indigenous Affairs reporter Carly Williams filed this story from Alice Springs and a warning, this report contains racist and offensive language which some listeners may find distressing. The negligence that we are being provided by our government needs to stop. Alice Springs is a town at the end of its tether. Thousands of residents gathered to share their frustrations and grief over the town's recent surge in crime. We're going to have to rebuild it off our own back because no one else is stepping up to do it for us. That's local business owner and longtime resident Garth Thompson. He convened the meeting and discussed a potential class action to sue the Territory Government for $1.5 billion for failing to keep staff, customers and businesses safe during this crime wave. After months of ongoing violence and vandalism, locals like Garth's mum, Michelle Thompson, spoke about the issues the town is facing. To have the windows smashed and to have the car drive through and just do a ram raid for the sake of it, they can just disrespect us and do whatever they like. And there are no consequences. In the 90s, we did foster care. And I know the children that came to us had a difficult life at home. That's not happening now. If the children are picked up at night, they're dropped back to their family. The children are being neglected. They should be into the care of NT families. We need to call out the government on what they're doing. They have the ability to fix these problems and move them on, but they choose not to. Within 20 minutes, the meeting took a turn. I don't want to be looking over my shoulder to see if there's someone that's going to try and grab my handbag. Just to calm a few of those little people over there, there is absolutely nothing racial-based about what we are trying to do tonight. Every single time you see a group of kids, whoever they are, during school time, ring the police, do a welfare check. And look at that clown over there in the brown and yellow shirt. Why don't you come up here, mate? We need to bring welfare to these kids. They deserve it. Central Ireland man Declan Ferber-Gillick spoke to the ABC outside the meeting. I think that what we saw tonight at what was ostensibly called a community meeting was a very effective and clever attempt to stir up rhetoric um, to unite people around the cause of continuing to criminalise very vulnerable people. I'm talking about some of the young people in this town, in this area and from this region who um, who live and work and, and go to school and um, have families and, and survive in this town. And we know that they're some of the most vulnerable and, and, and traumatised people in the country. Arunda custodian Elaine Noade was concerned about the meeting's focus on financial compensation. But we thought coming here was going to talk about solutions they love Alice, in other words, they were saying, hey. And then all of a sudden, they want to talk about the, the government, making the government accountable, because the damage that they, has been caused by kids on the street. But they don't come and sit with us and talk about it. But they can get come and do that with us all unaware until we came in. We came in good faith to hear what they had to say. And 
we're not happy. We spoke to several attendees. Some non-Indigenous people said the meeting was disturbing. This man, the ABC spoke to outside, incited violence against Aboriginal kids. Because the little black fuckers are going to get started to get belted. If something doesn't come out of it, they're going to start getting flogged. And they won't come back, because personally myself, we'll take them out, scrub and leave them there. Wouldn't that be called lynching? I don't really give a shit what it's called. It just saves a fucking problem. And I'm over it. You know, we'll be there to listen and give support, but, you know, we don't want the racism side to start taking effect, which we know is happening. And Alice Springs is very racist. You know, we feel it every day. Some people, as they left the convention centre, felt the meeting prioritised safety and property concerns over the Aboriginal community's desire to work out solutions, and some residents were clearly upset. It was really a disgusting show of white supremacy and really, really disappointing. It was scary to be in that room, and that doesn't represent in Bantua and Aranda country the way I know it. People were very, very well behaved. Very, very well behaved. There were one or two people who yelled out things. The tension and violence and anger in the room was really palpable and it was clearly all around white supremacy and the safety of white people in this town and that, that's all that's been considered. The organisers said they wanted to bring Alice Springs together. Resident Aaron Harry felt discussions were productive. Yeah, so obviously there was a lot of good points raised. Um, a lot of issues going on at the moment. Uh, people are afraid to stay in their own homes and... Uh, you know, they're finding other accommodation because they've, they've been told not to go home by the, the police and whatnot. So there's a lot of stuff going on in town and I think the message was right um, from Garth. But others, like Jacqueline Arnold, disagreed. It's just bizarre and it's dangerous and I am way more concerned about the danger posed by those people in there, those white people that have a choice where to live here, than vulnerable Aboriginal children whose connection to this country cannot be broken. Like, if they don't like living here, if they've got a problem with it, they can leave. At the end of the day, we're just hoping for change, something to change. I mean, it's a sad situation here in Alice, but um, if people don't bond together, you ain't going to get change. A town divided, hoping for unity. Kayleigh Williams reporting. It's not just Alice Springs where young people are vulnerable. You might be astonished to know that across Australia, more than 45,000 children are in out-of-home care, unable to live with their families. That's enough kids to fill the Gabba Stadium in Brisbane. And 43% of them are First Nations children. Today, two action plans are being launched aimed at reducing the rate of child abuse and neglect. One is specifically tailored for Indigenous kids, and all state and territory governments, along with First Nations groups, have been involved. Amanda Rishworth is the Federal Social Services Minister, and we spoke earlier. Amanda Rishworth, what real difference will these plans make to children at risk within the next three years? Well, what these plans have been developed along with states and territories uh, is really about how we change the system to ensure that the trajectory of a child uh, that may uh, be looking at coming into contact with the child protection system or is, is much better. And so what this has done is taken the voices of families, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders that work in this area, and what is embedded is some 
key actions to try and change the trajectory. So, of course, one of those aims is reducing the number of children in out-of-home care through a focus on prevention and early intervention. But it is also about making sure that those that do enter out-of-home care actually uh, have a child-centred approach, that, that their interests are at the centre of decision-making. And that's really, really important and a strong message we got from many groups and organisations. For kids in out-of-home care, what's the evidence now about their life prospects of being living a productive, healthy life? We know for many of these children, um, they are less likely to get employed. Uh, they're more less likely to get a good education. Um, so, and can be more likely to uh, be connected with the criminal justice system, for example. We recognise that uh, in some circumstances, um, that children, uh, there, there's no choice that for their safety, they end up in out-of-home care. But importantly, in this um, action plan, it actually takes into consideration, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, how we make sure that their culture, their connection to community is continued if they do end up in out-of-home care. And that's that's really important for a sense of identity and a sense of, of place. Now, states and territories have taken quite a big leap. Um, they have agreed to delegate authority to some of this decision-making, particularly for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, uh, to Aboriginal-controlled organisations. And, and that, in some instances, will require legislation. That, that is a, a really important step and something that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations had been calling for. So there is a real change uh, in the approach of how we do this to try and turn round those, those, uh, that trajectory. All right, there's already a closing the gap target to reduce the number of Indigenous children in out-of-home care by 45% by 2031, but in the past three years, more children have actually been placed into care that rather than fewer. What's it going to take to reverse that trend? Well, look, it's not going to be a changed overnight, but we do need to do things differently. I think that is the clear message. What we've done in the past hasn't worked, and we do need to do things differently. One of the key elements to developing these action plans is that this we didn't just uh, consult with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander leaders. They were actually integral in the decision-making to these action plans. So they sat around and they signed off on these actions because they believe these things would make a difference. So we need to be focused on doing the things that work. We need to be making sure that we're investing in Aboriginal controlled organisations. We need to be investing in the workforce and making sure that we have a sustainable workforce to deliver the interventions that work. So there's a number of areas of focus that we need to um, really develop going forward and that's what this, this plan does. Indigenous leaders have said part of the reason why we're seeing this antisocial behaviour and crime in Alice Springs right now is because it's one of those childcare desert areas where children don't have access to early childhood education or trained staff or early intervention. Will these frameworks address that? 
Well, certainly when it comes to um, Alice Springs, um, I know that the Commonwealth is working very closely with, I guess, some of the acute issues. But of course, it does come down to uh, the early years and making sure that the investment is done in the early years. Our government certainly has uh, a track record of investing. Um, it is about prevention as well, and that, that is a focus um, of these action plans. Um, for example, the Commonwealth has committed to investing in innovative solutions. We've committed to investing in parenting support as part of these action plans. So these are certainly investments we need to do, and we know we need to do it early on. Uh, and that's uh, and and what this framework does is make sure that we're making those investments uh, in that space as well. What extra money and how many appropriately trained staff will that require to make this happen? And will be, there be more money in the budget this year? Uh, well, look, at this point, um, this is a collective effort between states, territories and the Commonwealth. Obviously, um, in the October budget, we committed to $30 million to support Safe and Supported for a number of different initiatives. In terms of the workforce, this is a challenge um, to get make sure um, there is a skilled, work, uh, skilled workforce. And part of the actions is to develop a national approach uh, to building a sustainable workforce. Um, um, and so that's what we will continue to work with our states and territory colleagues on. Minister, thanks for your time. Thank you. France and Australia have agreed to join forces to produce thousands of artillery shells to help Ukraine push Russian troops out of its country. The announcement comes as the defence and foreign ministers from Australia and France meet in Paris to help repair relations. Our Europe correspondent is Steve Kinane. Steve, relations between Australia and France hit a low when the Morrison government cancelled a multi-billion dollar submarine deal in late 2021. How's the mood after this meeting? Well, Sabra, there was a media conference straight after the talks and both sides certainly talked about the warmth and also the bonds between the two countries and also the strong relationships and goodwill between the individual ministers involved in these talks. But the French could not resist pointing out that these talks were part of a repair mission of relations between the two countries. The French Foreign Minister, Catherine Colonna, said that this is the first time we have had a two plus two consultation since an incident I shall not come back to. She then went on to say our purpose today was very much to continue the work undertaken to rebuild an ambitious partnership between our two countries. And she went on to say we would like it to be a partnership based on mutual trust and respect and ambition. Sebastian Lecornu, the Defence Minister, also referenced the Australian soldiers who fell for our freedom and went on to say that that puts into perspective recent disagreements. So you could see there both ministers from the top making references to the souring of the relationship, but also pointing forward that they thought things could be going going well from now on. Both Lecornu and the Australian Defence Minister Richard Miles talked about this plan for both countries to jointly produce several thousand of 155mm uh, artillery shells for Ukraine. Apparently, Australia's going to provide the powder for these shells. Here's what Richard Miles said about this joint project. We wanted to uh, act together um, as, as, as a statement about how importantly Australia and France um, regard the support of Ukraine um, in, the, in, in the current conflict. Steve, France has also announced it'll support Australia's bid to hold the UN Climate Change Conference in 2026. What did France's foreign minister say in support of that bid? 
Well, Katarine Kolano was full of praise as she described Australia's bid to host COP31 as an outstanding application and she said that it would be supported by France when the time comes. Now, both countries have reiterated the importance of climate finance for vulnerable countries. That is something that will be well received by small Pacific Island nations. Also, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong thanked France for its support of its bid to host COP31 and acknowledged the important role that that country had played in previous UN climate change conferences. We respect and are grateful for uh, France's leadership uh, in establishing or facilitating uh, the Paris Agreement. Uh, We want to, through uh, this uh, bid to host the Conference of the Parties, we want to work with Pacific Island nations uh, to elevate their voices in the international forum. Foreign Minister Penny Wong and before her, our correspondent Steve Kinane in London. Pakistan's Prime Minister has condemned a suicide bombing that's killed at least 59 people in a crowded mosque. Another 155 are wounded. The mosque was inside a tightly guarded police compound and as David Sparks reports, it's unclear how the bomber managed to get through multiple checkpoints. Wounded victims and dead bodies are loaded onto vehicles as the search continues. The roof of the mosque in Peshawar collapsed when the bomb went off, killing and trapping people inside. People used their bare hands to search the rubble for survivors. One of the rescuers to arrive with an ambulance was Muhammad Bilal. When we went inside, we took out around seven injured people and rushed them to Lady Reading Hospital. Two of them died on the way. The rest were taken into the hospital. The front of the mosque has been demolished, the structure has collapsed, and many worshippers are still trapped under it. However, we have no idea how many are trapped. Peshawar is in Pakistan's northwest, and this mosque was in a walled compound, which houses the city's police headquarters and other government buildings. It's meant to be a high security zone, but somehow the bomber slipped through. Pakistani journalist Shazaib Wala says the attack raises questions about how he got in. What we know about this attack from the security officials and eyewitnesses is that the the suicide bomber was able to get inside the mosque before the midday prayer was about to start. And he took position in the first few rows and then he blew himself up when the prayer started. There have been been speculations about it that maybe it was inside job. There was the, uh, the interior minister of Pakistan uh, said in a TV show that maybe someone from inside could be involved in this attack. But uh, for now, it's too early to say how this uh, uh, how this attack was carried out. A high-level investigation team has been set up. In the next few days, we'll know more about it. It's not clear who's behind this attack. A commander for the Pakistani Taliban claimed responsibility on Twitter, but another spokesman for the group says it wasn't responsible and it doesn't attack mosques. A funeral service with full police honours has already been held for many of the dead. The Prime Minister, Shabazz Sharif, has visited victims in hospital. In a tweet, he said, The sheer scale of the human tragedy is unimaginable. This is no less than an attack on Pakistan. And he's promising stern action against those behind the bombing. Pakistan has seen a surge in militant attacks since November when the Pakistani Taliban ended its ceasefire with government forces. David Sparks.
Closure dates for many of the country's biggest coal-fired power plants have been fast-tracked during the past year, yet despite this energy transition, one expert says far too little renewable capacity is being added and the pace of new construction needs to double. Here's energy reporter Daniel Mercer. At her farm near Darlow, about four and a half hours southwest of Sydney, Rebecca Tobin helps run a cattle breeding stud with her husband and two children. We call it God's country. I mean, I'm pretty sure everybody who lives in a beautiful part of Australia calls it God's country, but we think we're it. Since 2020, the 40-year-old has been resisting plans to build a high-voltage transmission line, known as Humelink, through her Riverina property. She's particularly worried about a possible increased risk of bushfires. The Duns Road fire ignited mere kilometres away from where we are. That fire was terrifying and we already have a 330 kV line. This will parallel that. The Australian energy market operator has identified Humelink as critical to ensuring Australia can generate 82% of its electricity from sources such as wind, solar and hydro by the end of the decade and that it can be connected to the grid. But research from the University of New South Wales suggests Australia's rate of renewable energy adoption is lagging well behind what's required. We've pretty much been adding the same gigawatt hours of energy for the last five years. That linear addition really needs to ramp up to hit those targets. Dylan McConnell is a senior research associate at UNSW. Over the past five years, he says an average of 7.5 terawatt hours of green energy has been added a year, equivalent to about 4% of demand in the national electricity market. He says this rate needs to more than double. We have market dynamics and other factors driving investment decisions in the real world. And so you have you know, private actors and, and governments doing things at whatever pace they, they see fit, whereas the market operator does a sort of central planning, top-down, least-cost optimisation. You know, they assume a carbon budget for one, which doesn't exist in the real world. Riverina farmer Rebecca Tobin supports renewable energy, but she wants Humelink to be built underground as much as possible. We understand that Humelink is needed to safeguard the electricity grid moving forward. But what we don't understand is the way it is being done and that when you've got the technology to put it underground, why that isn't what we're going for. A spokeswoman for Transgrid, the company behind Humelink, says it's working with stakeholders to help deliver clean, reliable energy and that it has vigilant asset management practices to guard against bushfire risks. Energy expert Dylan McConnell says one way or another, the new capacity needs to be built. If we don't build these things fast enough or you know, we don't sort of replace plants coming out, then we are going to have challenges with reliability and you know, keeping the lights on. Energy expert Dylan McConnell from the University of New South Wales, ending that report from Daniel Mercer. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.